Welcome, everyone. Hello. Uh, this is episode, how many? I don't know. We've done a few now of the Exceptional Advice Show. It's what I like, specific numbers. Yes, the number, many. Okay. So, today we're talking about advisors and Shocker. cryptocurrency. I see you chuckling already. A little bit. Just a little. Okay. So... We decided that we were just going to have a conversation about it rather than do it as a presentation. So, you However, know, we do still have slides. So We may, <laughs> we, we reserve the right to flick to them if we choose to. Um, and the conversation is really about whether as an advisor and, you know, our audience is primarily comprised of financial advisors, accountants, you know, coaches, consultants. We also have some lawyers in the mix as well. Um, and interestingly enough, when we launched the show and we did a call out for it, we had some really interesting people put their hands up advising around all kinds of things. Like, um, you know, we've we've got the chance to talk to a doctor who advises people about sexual dysfunction, which could be an interesting conversation. Definitely not what I expected <laughs> yeah. to, to get back yeah. as, as somebody wanted to be on the show, but um, it, it was interesting. And we've had a, we've already had a chat and we'll be doing an interview with someone who um, advises corporations about big data and, you know, came through his PhD and doing things in big data and now is an advisor to, uh, to companies to actually understand how to build it into their systems and thought process. So... Certainly advice is a broad spectrum brush and for us we're much more interested in the concept of advice than we are in the denomination. But that being said, we primarily talk to financial advisors and and accountants and and one of the things that we've well noticed a lot is on the topic of crypto, by and large they have a pretty uniform set of opinions. So, what do you think those opinions might be, Tristan? No, don't do it. Bad. No. Um, crypto bad. Yeah, pretty much crypto bad. I don't know. I, I think it's just a little overplayed. I think it's the right sentiment to have just sort of to the nth degree. Um, so, you know, crypto's too unstable. You're going to get scammed. Don't worry about it. Like, it, it's not even worth looking into, which I think is... It's certainly a viewpoint you could easily hold buying into i don't know c certain people's viewpoints of it and reporting on it and yeah well i guess i guess this is really the the point of what we're talking about right so i started doing some stuff on linkedin right so linkedin's mm -hmm. my personal you know primary social media and i'm connected to lots of advisors so if you're listening or watching this show and you would like to connect feel free to uh, shoot me an invite on linkedin um, just do me a favor and mention, you know, mention the show so I know you're someone I'm happy to connect with as well. And I've done some posts over the last couple of months in particular, um, you know, asking should, should your clients have exposure to crypto? Um, and I've made some posts about, you know, particular points in the fear greed cycle that we've already been through, which has been pretty extreme as it always is with crypto um, over the last you know, a couple of months. And, you know, the feedback's been interesting. But by and large, the response was, yeah, crypto's bad. Crypto's a bubble. Crypto, you know, the, so the common words you hear are bubble. Uh, you also hear reference to the tulip bubble. Which I recently found <laughs> out was an actual thing. Yeah, so I was... Uh, just before the show, talking to Tristan about, you know, common phraseology around crypto, and he was like, "What's a what's a tulip bubble <laughs> what's anyway?" What's a tulip bubble? I honestly thought you were talking about like tulip bulbs, like as they grow. Yeah, no, they but it's they weren't bubbling themselves. Yeah. No, um, essentially, it was early contracts. I think it was like sixteen thirty four to sixteen thirty seven, reportedly. Although, yeah. Although there's been a lot of discussion about whether it actually happened or not or that it was over-conflated to, you know, be a parable about fear and greed. And the long and short of it was contracts 
So in other words, early early futures, if you like. <laughs> um, for so futures with a guaranteed um, physical settlement, but they were being traded without the intention of having physical settlement. In other words, uh, we could kind of use that perhaps as an analogy to, you know, GME or AMC or yeah. something more recently. So I think it's good having you on here, Tristan, as a meme stock in, in <laughs> investor as well, or someone who's um, certainly in the younger generation for a different perspective on stuff. Yeah. Um, so this is pretty common. And the thing that astounds me is that I've now asked a lot of accountants and a lot of financial advisors and a lot of lawyers, you know, do you have any crypto? And can you guess what the answer is? A resounding yes. <laughs> no. I imagine it's the same as me asking my friends if they've invested in anything. And most of the time it's uh, a few stocks, maybe an ETF. But Okay. So, so you're finding... Largely no. So are you finding that that's just just the your you know, your generation? So just for everyone in in the audience, how old are you exactly, Tristan? I am. I'm the age chameleon. Um, I am about to turn twenty three. Okay. So you're gonna try and keep your birthday a secret again this year? No, I don't think I'll be able to. Okay, that's good. So I don't think it's possible <laughs> between you and being at at. At a client's office, I don't think I'm going to be able to escape cake this year. Yeah, and probably not. Um, so I'm glad we brought that up so I don't forget. <laughs> <laughs> so you're 20, turning 23. Let's yeah. just give you the credit for 23. So yeah. that makes you less than half my age, I just realized. which <laughs> Feeling nice and young now, yeah. aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So do you think that's just because your friends haven't started investing yet? Are they more positive about crypto? Um, or is it just they're not even thinking about assets generally? I'm, I'm not sure. I think it's a mix between buying into the whole crypto bad sentiment and also just doing what their parents talk to them about. Right. So it could largely be that they haven't taken the time to read into it and they know about stocks and ETFs because they've been talked about and that's just what they do because they're familiar. Okay. Um, but a lot of them have been talking about, you know, the traditional buy a few houses in your 20s, rent them out to pay the mortgages of your own and them, and then you have investment properties, which, you know, has its own bubble if we're going to look at markets that way. But e either way, it's all relatively simple stuff. And, I mean, it's not like it's a huge sample size that I'm yeah, either way. But and I'm not sure it's a completely representative sample size either. No, I'd say So no. for clarity, Tristan actually went to school with our son. Um, and... So both of you have invested in shares quite a lot, you know, doing yeah. you, you know, doing your own kind of digging and research, mm. and and I've encouraged you guys to do that, and but also with some common investment philosophies like, you know, dollar cost averaging, and yeah, yeah. and uh, you know, diversif and uh, diversifying, and but timing you, the market, but yeah, you <laughs> you've put, you've put yeah, you put your own slant on that, yeah. Um, including yeah. doing some, you know, meme stocks and whatever, such yeah. as, you know, GME, which you guys actually did make some reasonable dollars yeah, on. Yeah, that, that went pretty well. I was happy with that. So essentially with GME, for those of you who aren't familiar, um, it's a bit of a one for the, you know, the, the little guy, the story, the parable of this story is, uh, you know, David versus Goliath. So we had the big hedge funds, you know, shorting a lot of stocks and so retail investors getting access to information and kind of getting together uh, drove up the price of uh, game GameSpot, which had been shorted a lot. Yeah. And, and because it was short, they could drive the price up. And, of course, the more the price went the wrong way, the more they had to cover their risk for settlement. Um, and there's been lots of conversations about whether there was naked selling going on and all kinds of stuff, so they didn't actually own the asset but had to go and acquire it and all this kind of stuff, which, of course, it looks like uh, actually happened or there was, you know, more, more sh <laughs> there was more short contracts than actual shares. Yeah. Um, and so 
a lot of the parable of this these stories has kind of been applied to crypto as well in that there's a, a bubble so the tulip bubble was kind of like an early an early gme you know it was just running hot but the the hype bubble was mm. was part of that as well yeah. i mean why would you why would you pay you know a, a small fortune for a tiny flower um so that's been one analogy that's always applied to crypto so i think it's interesting that society has these you know it's a, i guess thought strings it's like conventional wisdom however you want to talk about it and for me as an advisor i was indoctrinated into the same school now it's been a while since i've been a practicing financial advisor so i'm going to give you guys my disclaimer here and that is i'm not the financial advisor you probably are and i don't know what i'm talking about and so you should do your own thinking for yourself okay so just disclaimer given and this will also lead us into the whole idea about can you actually give your clients advice and because it's not securitized and what what are you allowed to give advice on and to the to that fact what is the definition of advice so this podcast itself in my book is us giving you advice and it's giving you advice through conversation through idea discussion through challenging perceptions and by suggesting that you take some actions that's what advice is advice isn't just buy xyz asset and hold this amount in your portfolio and so first of all if we're talking about advice especially for financial advisors they've kind of they've been caught up in what regulators think advice is which is product or securities advice so specific advice about a financial product but honestly that's just that doesn't mean that's the extent of advice that's not just what clients pay you for and if it is what clients just pay you for then you're doing yourself and your firm a massive disservice and the truth of the matter is that if you're not in a position to be educated about perhaps in my opinion one of the greatest revolutions of our financial and ownership system then how could you actually be calling yourself a credible advisor whether you're an accountant or financial advisor for that matter so if nothing else comes out of this my i guess my impetus for talking about it is to educate you because as a financial advisor i was indoctrinated into the same school you know bitcoins have got no actual worth it's not securitized it's too risky it's too volatile it's a fad but just those throwaway concepts led me to investigate this way too late. And by the way, I don't think it's too late, but much later than I should have. And I should have actually spent more time investigating this for myself and thinking for myself. And really, that's what we're encouraging you to do. So for me, it was, it's been an 18-month journey. So you know, I've invested reasonable amounts of dollars myself personally um you know my own funds and superannuation assets i'm not going to say it's the majority of my of my in investment you know direction but it's certainly a major component now and it's not just a major component because the small amount that i originally put in is now is now worth a lot more and the reason for that is because it's I think it's fundamental for a bunch of reasons, not just in how the technology is going to change things, but macroeconomically, diversification-wise, you know, all kinds of stuff. And if I could go back in time, I would want to tell myself, hey, wake up, play around with this stuff yourself, figure it out, and don't pretend you can get away without knowing anything and without being able to talk to people about it. So I guess that's the basis of our conversation today. So we've kind of done the same thing with some accountants as well, haven't we? Yeah. Uh, so what do you think the answer's been when I asked them, hey, what do you know about crypto? I mean, it's largely the same. I, th I think it's a very general sentiment that a lot of people have. The only difference with accountants is they do know something. What do you think they know? <laughs> that it's bad. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't. <laughs> apart, apart from crypto bad it's the devil's it's the devil's money <laughs> um 
No, they they know a little bit about the tax treatment for it, right? Yeah, like the the implications coming off. Uh, sure. Because some of them have clients that have come to them with it, mm. right? But other than that, when I asked them about it, nothing. So why what is what is crypto? Well, I think there's a couple of different paradigms that are in play, right? And as I said, we're not going to go into huge amounts of technical detail in this session. I didn't. I didn't want it to be this. I wanted it to be more conceptual, more of a conversation around it. So, firstly, what does the media know? What do the media talk about when they talked about crypto- cryptocurrency? Um, big on the whole bubble thing. Um, XYZ platform scammed people out of XYZ amount of money. Um, someone paid for a pizza that cost 11 Bitcoin this many years ago. Aha, uh-huh, big idiot. Like, it, it's it's very rarely in a positive light. Uh, they don't know anything about it either, right? <laughs> no, not really. Okay, so firstly, let's have a look at the, the phraseology here. So, cryptocurrency. I think that is a big misnomer in and of itself. Yeah. So, let me ask you this. Is Bitcoin a currency? Uh, you could use it as one. I wouldn't say fundamentally, though, that it's a currency. So what's your definition of a currency, then? Let's actually look up what the technical definition of a Go currency is. So a what, what's what's so the definition? Yeah, so to you, what what uh, what does currency mean? What does currency mean? Um, it's a system that has a set value relative to other systems of set value that you can trade for things, uh, assets, I suppose. Um, so here we go. A system of money in general use in a particular currency. So a system of money in general use in a particular cu- country, sorry. Um, of the fact or quality of being generally accepted as an exchange of value, as in it's in use. Yeah. Okay. So in other words, can you, I- is it something you can generally trade? Is it readily acceptable in most places? Are we back to Bitcoin? Yeah, let's let's start yeah, with Bitcoin. No, no not particularly. <laughs> okay. There's very, very few select places that are accepting it as, as currency. Right. So it's not in general use, so it's not a currency. Now, perhaps it was designed to be. It certainly has characteristics that could sure. allow it to be. And we've just had El Salvador as a country actually add it as an official currency, which is yeah. kind of interesting. Um, there's word that we might have some other, you know, some other South American countries follow suit with that, and perhaps some other smaller countries um, around the world as well. But let's not get too deep into that one. In most places in the world, including Australia, how is it taxed? Uh, you pay CGT. Okay, so it's taxed as an asset. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so in other words... Our regulators don't think it's a currency. They think it's an asset. Yeah. It's not widely accepted for exchange. So it's more like a security. It's more like a share. It's more like stocks and shares. Yeah. It's easy to yeah. explain it to them. Except it's not regulated, so they're not securities. So it's kind of interesting. Yes. So it's property, but it's not securitized property. That's kind of where it sits yeah. in most places in the world, right? So this whole idea of it being a currency and talking about using it to trade for other items to me is a whole misleading thought string. Now that may change, but it's not the principal story of Bitcoin at the moment and certainly not of the other cryptocurrencies, which we're saying aren't currencies. (laughs) So they're coins. Yes, you can call them coins. Um, You can certainly talk about them in that light, but they're not really currencies. So I don't know about you, but, you know, if I bought my Bitcoin for $20,000 and it's worth $60,000 or whatever, I'm just picking a number here, right? And I'm going to buy a Tesla. Sure. Why the hell... (laughs) Why the hell would I sell my Bitcoin to buy the Tesla 
when the prices fluctuate a lot. So by the time, you know, I could look at it before I buy it and by the time I finish signing the paperwork, it could have changed, you know, by two, three, four. I mean, if it's in a real a real pump or a real dump, then it could be like seven or eight percent just in the time it's taken me to fill the contract in. Yeah. So why would I do that? And secondly, why the hell would I trigger a capital gains tax event in order to exchange, you know, my Bitcoin for Tesla? Which is going to depreciate very quickly. <laughs> Again. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to rock up and say, hey, man, can <laughs> can I give you my BHP shit as an exchange? <laughs> like exchange for, a, exchange for a coffee, <laughs> right? Yeah. I'm, I'm just not going to do that. So then... What the hell is the point of Bitcoin if it's not really currency? And that's really the question. And so we won't answer that one yet. (laughs) Well, let's come back to some of the other stuff that's talked about with regards to, to Bitcoin, right? Because I am separating Bitcoin as being the principal representation of Okay, I'm going to answer it and give it away here. (laughs) Of asset storage, right? Or wealth storage or store of value. And then we're going to talk about other cryptocurrencies, which are more a unique or a different way to invest in technology. So unlike with equities, you know, you're buying, buying a shareholding in a tech company. With, with that side of the, the coin, uh-huh. See what I did there? Um, <laughs> with that side of the cryptocurrency. <laughs> um, most of your altcoins that actually have any real value, and we're going to talk about the ones that have, I, in, at least in my unexpert, unknowledgeable, know-nothing opinion. Yeah. Uh, okay. At least you guys <laughs> should have a bit more of a laugh at my disclaimers than the ones that uh, the fundies put up on the screens. Um, so in my... In my understanding, you've got store of value and then you, and maybe the currency thing will come into play if you've got more countries, you know, using it and it's more widely accepted. But at the moment it's an asset, so store of value. And on the other hand, you've got the altcoins, which have business models, teams, investors, technology, use case, profit models, and the way I'm going to explain it simply is invest buying the coin, and there's a lot of variations of this, so I'm oversimplifying, but you're really buying equity in the asset. The value of the coin is the profit of the enterprise, right? Because they get their benefit primarily through the appreciation of the coin itself, and they hold coins themselves. It's the network effect, so the use case for the software code itself. So the software is the coin, is the currency, is the technology, is the company, is the profit model, is the product, right? So it's all wrapped into to one. Mm. And so the more it's used, the more valuable it is, the more the company produces. You, you get the idea, right? And I said, as I said, that's an oversimplification. So those things have use case. They have business models. They have disruptive technology. You can compare one set of technology to another. You can compare, you know, we've got Ethereum as the primary smart contract platform and you've got, you know, Polkadot as a competing one and you've got Cardano or ADA, you know, and Cardano, which is the code ADA, it's a newer a newer technology and it's already solved a lot of the problems that ethereum you know the original and dominant player kind of had built in at the beginning and so you're making an investment much like you would in competing stocks and assets but it's different again because you're not buying the equity you're buying the code which is in the coin and the software and anyway you get the idea so the more ethereum is used the more valuable it can become and the more it's scaled, you get the idea, right? And, you know, if I'm just elaborating on that case, you've got ADA that has no use case really at the moment. I mean, it does. It's being used in some places, but not really. 
but has the you know has super potential versus you know the incumbent ethereum which is used everywhere and for just about everything and and it's you know so much of it is locked up in actual projects and being used which increases the scarcity and drives the value you get the idea right and so you've got it as a dominant player but it has scaling issues <laughs> and so it's working to unwind those scaling issues and which one will win and that's part of your investment mix right so there's the two sides of this equation. So we're going to come back to the first side, which is the store of value. And I think there's no argument that Bitcoin's the king, right? Bitcoin, and there's competitors to Bitcoin in this space. You've got Bitcoin Cash, you've got Litecoin, you know, I mean, you've got, you've got some of the uh, meme coins like Dogecoin and Shiba or whatever the hell it's called, right? But to me, Bitcoin is really the... It's kind of like the central currency for the crypto ecosystem. And so whilst there's not a currency for buying and selling goods, it kind of is a currency for buying and selling other crypto, or at least it's a benchmark against all of the other cryptos. So it's kind of the central asset for the ho this whole ecosystem, which is rewriting kind of everything to do with value and contract exchange and the financial ecosystem. But Bitcoin itself, so it kind of fits in there, but it's also a store of wealth. And that's a big argument that, well, or yeah. proposition that's been taking place. So I know I had a big monologue there, <laughs> right? So I just wanted to set a bit of the scene for understanding what this environment is about. So don't confuse the rest of the marketplace with perhaps Bitcoin because most of them are not like that. And if you conflate the two together, then you're kind of misunderstanding the whole equation. Bitcoin itself doesn't have a use outside of exchange. Okay? That's or storage. Storage and exchange of value. That's that's its principal purpose. So what other things are talked about when it comes to Bitcoin itself? It's in a bubble or it's a fad, right? It's a yeah. tulip phase. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a tulip bubble. Yeah. How long do you reckon something has to be around and continue to do the same things for it not to be a fad anymore? Uh, probably def depends on whatever the longest fad was. Uh, maybe it's a p how long is a piece of string question, but yeah. it's a question that I'm going to ask all of you. So, when did Bitcoin come about? Good question. It's 2011, I think. Uh, there we go. Uh, <laughs> I was late. January 2009. I think it only started for me in 2011 because that's when I kind of he actually heard about it, right? Um, my... You know, my uh, sad Bitcoin story is in 2011. Um, no, it wasn't 2011. No, it had to be, no, it was 2010. Because I'd sold my financial planning business by 2011. So I was definitely sitting in my office in, you know, Central Queen Street in Brisbane. And for days, I was, <laughs> I was spending a little bit of time here. Um, trying to figure out how I could put a thousand dollars into Bitcoin. And the thing was I could only buy it. I can only find, well, I could only discover that I could buy it through, through an American exchange and I had to have USD and for me to get the money there. I mean, just think about this. This is, this is a large part of what cryptocurrency has been disrupting and you're sure it's disrupted in normal the normal financial circumstances because it's much more easier for me to do these transactions but i'm telling you now if i wanted to buy usdc and then buy an asset somewhere around the world if i were to use the traditional system it would take me a lot longer and be far more expensive and if i want to do it with a cryptocurrency i can do it so easily in a couple of minutes if i want to lend my crypto to someone you know, in Spain, right? And then 
and then redeem it and then exchange it or, or move it to an exchange in uh, Cayman Islands or whatever. I mean, I can do this in seconds. And so that's part of the benefit in the deregulation. And we'll get on to talking, to talking about that in a second. So how long does it need to be doing something in a repeatable systemic way for it not to be a fad? So it's been around since January 2009. So, you know, 12 years. Well, 12 and a half years. Yeah, this year's going fast too, isn't it? We're all running on COVID time. So it's 12 and a half years long enough to be able to say, mm, hang on a second, maybe this thing ain't going away. For me, yeah. Well, for me, yeah, as well, right? Um, what, what about this bubble thing, right? Well, why isn't it a bubble? I think, first of all, you have to understand what it is. So what are, the, what, are the, what are some of the characteristics of Bitcoin, as you understand it, Tristan? Bitcoin itself, um, what, as far as it not going away, not being a bubble, the, the, the four-year cycle is very, very interesting. Okay, so it's got some behavior characteristics that seem to repeat around a four-year cycle. Mm. Okay, so in other words, it, it goes up for certain periods and it goes down for certain periods typically. So what's the four-year cycle about? What happens every four years? Um, basically, the it, it becomes harder to mine the Bitcoin itself. So in other words... That's an oversimplification of it. I mean, it's called the halving, right? Yeah. Um, because every four years, the hash rate, which is the rate at which um, your technology you know, largely GPUs or processors can solve the Bitcoin equation called mining, can actually, you know, do that. The amount of, uh, the amount of blocks, the amount of blocks on the chain are halved, right? So the amount that can be mined is halved. Now, I'm, <laughs> I was trying to avoid going into the complicated discussion of what mining is. Basically, it's a way to stabilize the network. So this is a concept called proof of work. And I'm not going to go into the technicals of the two different types, proof of work, proof of stake. But we're talking about Bitcoin. So in other words, the size and the, the stability of the network determines how secure it is and how scalable it is. And so the more people hold it, the more secure it becomes. And the way to scale that network is through having dedicated machines solving and validating the network itself. And then those machines are rewarded by earning Bitcoin itself. It's kind of my oversimplified way of explaining it. So every year, the amount that's being produced halves. And so, you know, leading up to the halving, the price is generally going down and then... Uh, after the halving, the price is generally going up. And it tends to go in these cycles. Um, so we've just got a little graphic of that on the screen. I might flick over to that one as well. So, you know, we've got, we've got some price comparison data here. Um, I'm not going to delve into it too much, but you've got, um, you know, the, the various timing of the halving events. And then a comparison of price. I mean, all of these things you can Google yourself. That's why I'm not spending time going into it because there's so much information out there. Uh, the question just would be, why haven't you looked at it yourself? So you can see every four years represented by, you know, the dotted lines that the price is going up and down in those cycles. Okay, so we can flick away from that again. And then the question really comes down to then, well, is it a fad? And how long does it need to be doing this for? So we're going to go to another slide now. And this is something that I think most financial advisors would certainly recognize. So what we have here is cumulative returns going back to 2011 for different asset classes. So in this particular case, we, we've got Bitcoin as an asset class. 
In other words, we're comparing it against the NASDAQ. We're comparing it against the SPY or large caps. We're comparing it against small caps. Uh, we've got US property REITs. We've got long duration treasuries. Preferred stocks, high yield bonds. There's a whole, I mean, you can compare it to whatever you want. But the simple matter is compare it to any other asset class in any other form and you get one simple conclusion. And that conclusion is since Bitcoin came into existence, it's been by far the strongest performing asset, whether you deem it an asset or not. And I do. I think it's unique in its properties. I think it is primarily... A, an asset rather than, as I said, a currency. And I think it has it has prop scarcity properties. It's fungible. In other words, every Bitcoin is exactly the same as every other Bitcoin, um, except that you can track which Bitcoin has been held and used by who, which is kind of interesting. So in some ways, it's the most transparent asset. Please don't think that... <laughs> It's a privacy coin. It is not. So what's one of the... Uh, here's, here's something we haven't talked about. All right, we'll bring that one up ag again in a sec. But this is something you also hear in the news all the time. So who uses crypto? Who are these people that like to use crypto? Hackers and scammers. Hackers and scammers. And, ter and terrorists. Terrorists. Yeah. Crypto bad, it's... <laughs> devil's currency and it's used by evil people so that they can scam things everywhere and the problem with that is if you just accept the narrative you're given then you're being blindly ignorant and i think that would be a lesson for all of, all of us think for yourself don't believe what the media is telling you um, do your own homework don't believe what the you know conventional financial systems telling you either because up until more recently when they've decided they can make money out of it, they've had a vested interest to to say negative things about it. And it's kind of interesting to see the you know, the press of head of Goldman Sachs or you know, JB or whatever, what they said before. And then, you know, they'll fire anyone who even thinks about it and now they're launching funds or whatever. So please don't think that Bitcoin is anonymous, right? It's easily trackable. Um, the wallet information, you can see. And by the way, you know, is it a manipulated price market? Well, yes, I definitely think it is. How do I know that? Because you can see, you know, you can see groups of wallets dumping, you know, dumping their coins at particular times. It's kind of interesting to see that happen. You know, these large, whack, call, they're called crypto whales, right? Like, you know, whales typically, you know, holding large large numbers of bitcoins um, and you can see them you know dump and then buy back and you can see them do that timed with particular news articles right and it's usually the same kinds of news articles which is kind of interesting to to understand so what's some of the negative press that comes out around bitcoin so first you know criminals use it mm -hmm. which okay maybe a decade ago when it wasn't easily trackable maybe but now if i was a criminal i would much prefer using u.s currency than i than i would using bitcoin um you know the whole texas pipeline and then recovering the bitcoin like uh, yeah no duh um, all i had to do is figure out where the exchange was or what computer it was stored on um anyway so if you're a criminal and my advice is don't, don't use Bitcoin. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding, right? So what's some of the other negative press that comes out around Bitcoin in particular? Um, it's very unstable. Very okay, volatile. so it's volatile. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to argue that point. Yeah, no, it's true. Uh, it goes up, it goes down. And if you measure it over... Yeah, let's flick back to that slide again, right? So, if we go all the way back to 2011, and we've got Bitcoin there in, you know, the top line, we can see the returns. So, we've got 1,400%, 186%, 5,500%, oh, negative 58, um, positive 
125, 125, 1300. Oh, minus 73. Ah, funnily enough... How many years in there has there been a negative return? Two in eight. Okay. Or one in three. So, in other words, actually less negative years than, than almost all of the other asset classes. But if you measured it throughout a year, you could have it up, you know, 50%, up, you know, up 200% in a month or two months down 70%, down 80%. So it certainly has a volatile price. It has volatile price action. Yeah. But if, if you're a financial professional, then one of the things that you talk to your clients about, especially when it comes to, you know, to investing, is that you've got to be looking at performance of asset class over a time period. And if we're comparing since it its inception, even if we went back all the way to 2009, there's just absolutely no argument that it has characteristic performance. It works typically around a four-year cycle. It is incredibly volatile, but it's incredibly volatile primarily to the upside. Yeah. And if you could go back in time and just hold one asset... <laughs> Which one would it be? It's like having the almanac. <laughs> yeah. Right. This good old sports almanac. Ah, I love the old Back to the Future. Yeah, good movie. So, is 12 years of highest returns of any asset class enough for you not to think it's a fad? Not to think it's a bubble? I don't know, but that's the question you need to be asking yourself. Personally, I think there is a very strong argument that it will continue to perform the way, same way it has performed since its inception. Now, as the network effect grows, will the relative price increase be the same? Probably not. Oh, yeah, I would argue no. Because the percentage increase from, you know, $10 million to... 1.2 trillion, which is where it got to earlier this year. It's now sitting at just below 700 billion. Um, so 1.2 trillion compared to it going to 10 trillion, yeah. right? Which is still ma massive, massive, massive growth. So there's a very big argument by many that it will surpass gold, right? So, you know, that's more of the magnitude of gold, 10, around 10 trillion, right? So that's 10 times. So that's certainly not the same degree of increase. No. And the other thing, of course, is the larger it gets, the less volatile it gets. And, of course, the less volatile to the upside. So your percentage gains might not be as significant. And if we look at the next 10 years, maybe it's not going to be 200%. Maybe it'll be 100% per annum. Okay. Maybe it'll be 70% per annum. But there's still a pretty strong chance that it could outperform other asset classes. Oh, yeah. Okay. But is it volatile? Yeah. Does it have risk? Yeah. Is there a risk that it gets banned? Sure. I think it's highly unlikely at this point, but yes. Yeah, it's possible. Could. So would you put all your money in it? Yes. <laughs> I am <laughs> risk taker man. No, okay. I would not put all my money in it though. No, neither would I. Um, but and I've certainly done some of my own analysis in this. And you know, even just a five percent allocation, because of the macroeconomic factors and reasons for wanting to have a store of value that is scarce, and this is the other thing people need to to know. So Bitcoin is deflationary. So in other words, there's less of it available all the time. Uh, and I think we, I, d I can't remember the percentages, but we've already mined the vast majority of how much there is to be mined. So at a certain point, there's no more mining. It runs out, right? The network's yeah. large enough to s sustain itself. And therefore, there's no more supply. So why would people continue to buy Bitcoin? Because it's scarce. 
because it's a very efficient exchange of energy, right? It's fungible. It's easily transferable. The cost of transactions is minimal. It's decentralized, which means you own your own asset. No one else controls it. So you can ban its conversion, but you be very difficult to physically take it away from someone. Oh, yeah. Other than pointing a gun to someone's head and saying, tell me your code or mm. give me your logins or whatever. It doesn't rely on any government or it's that's what decentralized is, right? Yeah. You can't you can't do anything with it unless you access the, you know, the fully encrypted code. So why would you want to buy it? Well, simply because it's a good place to store your assets. And so long as enough people every year continue to decide that it's a reasonable way to store energy, then the price is going to go up. And then when people don't agree that it's a reasonable store to go down. But that's, how's that different from any other asset we have? It's still about an agreement of value. Now, does it have a relative use case? For example, a property. Well, I can farm my property. I can mine on my property. I can live in my property. I can, you know, build bungalows and rent them out. <laughs> so does it have a use case like that? Well, not exactly, but that's changing, especially with DeFi, right? So DeFi distributed finance. So what if I want to lend my Bitcoin to someone? What if I want to use it as collateral? What if I want to securitize it? What if I, do you get to, and or you can do all of this. Mm. You can, there's something called yield farming, which is basically finding ways to produce yield from your different cryptocurrencies. Um, on average, you can receive somewhere around an, know anywhere between seven and fifteen percent annualized return on your cryptocurrency it's not bad where else can you get that at the moment <laughs> my savings account <laughs> oh sorry that's seven cents that's <laughs> my that's point zero zero yeah. zero seven um that's less than that when you can't take into account your fees right yeah um how many fees have you got well yeah and that's another thing there are billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars every year that are taken out of the financial and value exchange ecosystem by middlemen, right? And just simply by cost of transfer. Yeah, yeah. So if I want to trans, if I want to buy a property in, I don't know, Europe, how hard is it for me to do that? Like to get clear title, to actually exchange the dollars through multiple institutions. Like it's just hard. Yeah, it's a bit of a nightmare. Well, in the future, it, assets are going to be tied to to cryptocurrencies, right? And this is where non-fungible tokens come into play. So fungible we talked about with Bitcoin. So in other words, it's they're all, all the same. indivisible. Yeah. Non-fungible means they're all completely divisible. So, all unique. so I have, you know, this string of code which designates ownership and title over this particular asset artwork property whatever um trading card which is what they're kind of you know it's it's kind of how they're being used in in a lot of cases now and there's certainly i certainly think there's been a bubble in some non-fungible assets so if you want to talk about tulips then i definitely think we had something there right with a bit of a hype craze and then we saw a crash but that crash didn't last 12 years i can tell you that (laughs) And do I think non-fungible tokens will be incredibly useful? Yeah, they're going to change the nature of ownership and exchange of value, just like every other element of cryptocurrency is. I personally like the DeFi area the most because I gr- have grown up in and around traditional finance. Now, I'm not saying there's not risk associated with that, right? Um, because it's unregulated. So, because it's unregulated... And it is, is it completely unregulated? Well, let's have a look at some of the exchanges. So, you know, you've got Binance and then you've got Binance US. So Binance US is regulated by who? Uh, I don't know. The 
people who own it? I was give, it's kind of given away in the name Binance US, right? It's regulated by the US government. Why? Because KYC, right, so know your client, and all of the banking regulations come into play for exchanges because they are the point of transaction. Because they can mm-hmm. take people's money, they have to be regulated under that system. So, you know, I, I use CoinSpot a lot to buy to buy assets. So I have to go through, know your client. There's, you know, it's fully trackable, you know, anti-money laundering, all of that kind of stuff is the same thing, right? So it's not as if I can secretly acquire, you know, acquire my Bitcoin. I have to go through a regulated process. But then if I want to stake it somewhere, I'm moving it off of a regulated exchange potentially, right? Mm -hmm. So if you take it to, you know, a shark, place right and you're lending it and you're getting 30 percent return or whatever it might be well is there a risk that you may not get your money back yes there is and so this is the idea of being you have to be you have to do your homework like in anything so um let's just talk for a minute really quickly about um some of the risks that might come into place in the crypto environment right and we, as we said, we just wanted this to be an introductory discussion to you guys. So, what is a stable coin, Tristan? I mean, you're kind of giving it away. It's a coin that's stable. So why is it stable? Usually, it's backed by um, something stable. I suppose a uh, a bigger currency. Another. All oh right. Thank you. Yeah. So, in other words, it's tied to a currency. Yeah. Right. Well, pretty much all cryptocurrencies are denominated in the reserve currency of the world currently, mm-hmm. right? Which is the Australian, do- the American <laughs> dollar, right? So the USD. Yeah. So almost all stable cli- coins, certainly any of the ones that I'm familiar with, are represented in USD. And so, in other words, the idea is they're pegged to the currency. Mm-hmm. So when I buy a dollar worth using US dollars then I'm getting a dollar's worth of stablecoin. Yeah. Okay. So here's the thing, right? It's not completely regulated. So who's controlling this, right? It's an unregulated... Well, it's. I mean, it's regulated to a degree, but it's also unregulated to a degree. And so... Uh, and consider this a warning as well, right? So the three main stablecoins that exist at the moment... So what's n- what's number one? Uh, I assume it's Tether, USD Tether. Yeah, USDT, right? Is how it's uh, is what the code, but it's called Tether, right? So USD Tether. And by the way, I, this isn't advice. I would tell you to do your own homework, but I certainly would never and have never bought any USDT. Now it is the largest, and it was kind of. It was kind of the the main player, and it was started by some guys who uh, it's come out who also have an exchange, and then they've commingled the tether, <laughs> the tether business with the exchange, and it looks like they've bailed each business out of trouble, <laughs> you know, numerous times. And so, in other words, they've got a the ability to print an unlimited amount of tether. In the first place, they said it was 100% backed. So every time you would spend a dollar, they would go and buy one US dollar and they would hold that in reserve. But it's not audited. They've avoided having audits. Um, and it is, it's kind of an important thing to understand. So regulation versus non-regulation. The non-regulation means that it's developing faster. It's replacing, it's disrupting it's developing, the opportunities are bigger. What's the converse side to volatility to the upside? It's also increased volatility to the downside. What's the c- So the same thing, regulation, non-regulated. Will people get burnt? Yes, they will if they're not informed. If they don't do their homework, if they don't understand how to do homework, if they don't understand how to do an assessment of risk. And you can compare that to Binance, which is the biggest exchange in the world, right? It's, you know, the, it's, got, it's backed by 
huge successful businesses it's worth a lot of dollars um it's far more reputable by comparison and so you can buy binance usdc it's audited all the time i think it's monthly right whereas tether's never had an audit so it's audited monthly and you can look at usdc which again was backed and invested by some of the biggest reputable players in the world and it's audited all the time and yet most people just don't know right and so the reason for doing this show is to say to you guys can you actually can you actually not invest in understanding some of this stuff yourself because if you're not your clients are going out there and they're either not participating when a small exposure could actually change the entire performance of their portfolio a five percent exposure could literally change their entire return dynamic and risk profile or conversely they could make a decision to invest in crypto and have half of their portfolio sitting in tether and then it comes unwound so how can you guys not actually be investing your own time and energy into figuring this out and that would be the advice i'd go back in time and give to myself don't just listen to what the media says don't just listen to what the financial you know existing incumbents say you have to do your own homework this is something disruptive and it's something you can't not speak to your clients about that doesn't mean telling them to invest it means educating them advice is much bigger we've been giving you advice today and the advice is simple this is bigger than you might think and i am going to say you should be investing right you should be investing some of your own money but i'm not telling you to invest as an investment in an asset i'm telling you to invest because it's an investment in your education right so only invest the amount that you would be willing to invest in your own education as someone who holds themselves out to be a finance professional okay and more than that invest for yourself because in in my mind this is a big thing it's not going away it's rewriting ownership it's rewriting exchange you know the, it will replace how almost everything is done in a matter of you know the next 10 to 15 years in my opinion and the more i look at it the more it blows my mind so do yourselves a favor and i guess don't just take for granted what other people are telling you it's not it's, don't just take the it's bad it's a bubble it's tulips it's this it's that do your own homework and if you haven't actually done some of it yourself if you haven't played around with it and experienced setting up accounts and moving it to different exchanges and trading it from one crypto to another and staking it and getting a yield return if you haven't and lending it out or borrowing against it if you haven't done that you haven't experienced exactly how much this is going to mean okay so anything you'd like to add to that as we as we wrap up tristan um, not for today. I mean, there's there's plenty of tangents I want to I want to dive down the rabbit hole in, but not not that we really have time for without some some more pre-prepared not not presentation but slides anyway. <laughs> yeah, look, guys, if you would like us to delve more into this, obviously I've spent a lot of my own time and energy, um, and I have you know I have invested reasonable reasonable dollars myself, um. If you'd like us to delve more into that and perhaps do some, you know, more detailed webinars, then please let us know. But in the meantime, you can do what I did and just do my own homework. And no one else is going to educate you around it. You know, your licensee, the media, they're not going to teach you about this stuff. They're not. You have to go and look at alternative sources of information. And it's definitely worth doing because you can't afford to not be informed yourselves. And I don't think you can put your clients in a position where you're not talking to them either. You know, it's one of the reasons I put up a post, 
you know, on LinkedIn saying I would not be buying Dogecoin now. And that was when Dogecoin had just gone up something like, I don't know, was it a thousand percent in 25 days? Something like that. Something insane. Um, It was 500% in three days, like at one point in there. And the reason I said that is because I knew exactly what would happen as it always happens when, you know, you get massive run-ups in asset prices. And not only that, to me, Dogecoin has none of the characteristics of the things we've talked about before. So I think you're also right. There is a tulip bubble going on. And there are meme coins, right, like Dogecoin, that was invested as a joke. It has no team. It has no use case. Right? It's It doesn't have any of the characteristics of Bitcoin. It's inflationary, so there's more of it all the time. Like It just gets produced all of the time. So being informed of this allows you to inform your clients and that's different from giving securitized advice. And I think if you don't educate yourselves, then you're doing your clients and yourselves a disservice. That's all for today. Love to know what you think and please let us know what else you'd like us to be talking about on the Exceptional Advice Show. Thanks everyone. Take care and we'll talk to you soon. Cheers.